smiling. Thank you for your singing your songs of worship and, and praise to the Lord. We're here to give him glory. We're here to worship him and understand all that Christ has done for us. Before we turn to the word of God, let's just take a moment and bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful that we can come and we can sing songs that talk about the power of the blood of Christ to redeem us, to forgive our sin, and to recognize that all we need in this life is to know Christ because he is sufficient. He is the best. He's your greatest gift to us. And so as we open up your word that's inspired and inerrant and teaches us truth, give us insight, help us to understand the great work Christ has done for us because we pray these things in his name. Amen. In preparing this message this morning, I read someone who said studying the book of Hebrews is a lot like swimming underwater with your eyes open. It's kind of blurry. It's not always clear. And then after you swim for a while, you've got to kind of come up for some air at times. And so this morning, I just want to take a couple of moments to, to set up what we're going to look at today. First of all, I want to remind you that there is nothing at all entertaining about studying the book of Hebrews. Of course, the Bible is not written for our entertainment. It's written for our instruction and for our good. And it's designed to tell us two important things. It's informing us that we need to know God, and we need to understand how we can reach him and how we can know him. And so we've got a lot of things that are working against us. We've got a lot of problems in doing that. Uh, the main battle we have is against ourselves. Because as you realize, we are infinitely different than God. Furthermore, we are born as rebels. We shake our fist at God. We deserve God's wrath, the fury of his anger. And we've got another problem. We are trapped in a moral depravity. We were born that way and we regularly make those choices. And all of that makes us a whole lot different than he is. And so the writer of this book of Hebrews is committed to us on how we can know God and how we can reach God. And of course, the center of his message that we've been proclaiming since the beginning of the study is that Christ is superior. He is absolutely the best. So before we look at Hebrews chapter 7, I want to have us start in Isaiah 55. You can either find it in your Bible or in a moment I'll just put it on the screen. And there are a couple of verses in Isaiah 55 that perhaps you haven't thought about in a while. And the two verses that I want to see is Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9. And in these verses, God is speaking. and God is proclaiming his words. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways declares the Lord for as heaven as flies heaven is higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts now if you think about it that's a problem our thoughts are our thoughts they're not like his thoughts our ways are our ways and they're nothing like his ways and in these realms we are infinitely poles apart and so though we may try real, real hard, I try hard to think God's thoughts. It's hard for me to do. It doesn't come naturally. I try to follow his ways. A lot of times I don't do too well at that. You see, the push to know God, I believe, is something that he's planted in the heart of every individual. Ecclesiastes says that he 
planted eternity in their hearts. And though people, even in our culture today, do everything they can to try to stomp that out, that's there, and that's driving them, and they're trying to push it away. But God planted the desire to know him deep in our hearts. So then, as we set this whole stage up, I want to ask this question. How do we, who are sinful rebels, have a relationship with a holy God? How do we, how do we span that chasm, that, that gulf that's there? And there's a verse, I think, that helps us as we stop one more time before we get to Hebrews 7. And that's uh, in the book of John, John chapter 17. This is a prayer that Christ gave. He gave this prayer on the night before he went to the cross. And he states that there is a way to heaven. And he says this. He says, this is eternal life. So if you want to know what in the world is eternal life, he's going to tell you. This is eternal life. That they may, what? What does it say? Know you. That's eternal life. That they may know you, the true God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. These are not words of some religious philosopher. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is eternal life. What's eternal life? That they may know you. They may know you whose thoughts are not our thoughts and whose ways are not our ways. But this is the only way we can know him through Christ. And this, again, this is the constant pursuit of humanity. We, we, try, we try everything we can do as rebels to try to stamp that out. And there will be millions and millions and millions of people tonight who put their head on the pillow and they're going to wonder, although they don't want to think about it for too long, how can I know the one who made me? There must be something more. There's something missing. Now, John Stott, who is one of my favorite writers, has written a little book called Focus on Christ. And he says this in his book. He said, our little minds cannot conceive of God, let alone contain him. We need a mediator. The gulf between God and us is still wider than we so far have considered. Now, I love this next statement. He says, it is not only that we lack the mental equipment to conceive of him, but we lack the moral integrity to approach him. That's true. I hope I'm not going to offend you too badly, but I'm going to tell you the truth. That's true of every one of us here. We need help. We don't have the the moral equipment to know him by ourselves. We need a bridge. We need something to separate the gulf between us and God. I'm going to give you an old Latin word now coming up. We need a pontifex. You know what that is? It's a priest. We need a priest. We need someone to give us an axis from earth to heaven. Someone from sin to righteousness. Someone from guilt to forgiveness. We need help. We desperately need something to help us. We need someone to help us draw near to God. We need to know him personally. Hebrews. So if you haven't turned yet, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. The author of Hebrews is committed to answering those questions. The truth, faith that's needed to know who God is is a very simple one. You can live your life knowing God, knowing that there's a priest, there's a bridge to get you across. And that's who we're going to look at this morning. I call him Jesus Christ. One of his titles I'd like to give him, he's the build, 
He's the builder of the bridge, and he is the bridge. And so the basic need we have to know God is to know who Christ is. Now, in Hebrews chapter 7, again, we're kind of catching up and reviewing and setting up the stage. He's talking about Jesus Christ, the absolute best. And in this chapter, he's a priest. He is not like the Old Testament priests who offered sacrifices and brought blood into the temple on a regular basis. But he's a different kind of priest. You were here last week. He's a priest after the same order as a man named Melchizedek. Now, we don't have a good Jewish background. We don't really know how to pronounce that name. Uh, We don't know how to spell that name. But we looked at him last week, and he is the one who sets the pattern. He came on the scene, and he gave an example, a picture of who Christ would, would follow. So it says, if you have your Bibles open in chapter 7, verse 15, he says, Christ has become that priest. The genealogy of Christ does not go back to Aaron and does not go back to the Levites. He's from the tribe of Judah. Not a Levite, he's from the tribe of Judah. In verse 16, it says this. He says, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. So if you're looking for someone who's worth following, you need to find somebody whose life is absolutely perfect. The only person absolutely perfect is Christ. You can find all of you can find all of the other priests, and you'll find flaws, but you'll never find a flaw in the person of Christ. He stands that test because he is absolutely the best. In verse 17, it says, "For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek." That's the order. That's the the line that he's following. And then remember the contrast. I love these verses. It says, on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, here's the good news. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. There it is. It's again and again. We have the opportunity of getting close to God, a relationship to God, having a personal walk with who God is. And so the next part, this is, this is a great passage, is committed to exalting the person of Christ. But you've got to put your thinking caps on. This is, this is not elementary truth. This is not fun and games information. It requires some very deep thinking. So let, can, can we do that together? We're going to want to think deeply about these truths. In verse says 20 to 25, we look at the priest of priesthood of Christ, and we're going to look at contrasted, contrasted with what is in the Old Testament. We'll contrast Jesus with Old Testament priests, showing that he is, in fact, a superior one. Let's look at the first contrast with me. All other priests, no oath. Jesus Christ, oath. Now, look at verse 20. It's kind of worded in a rather awkward way, and it was not without an oath. Now, in English, you would say what? It was a with a oath, because it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. Jesus' priesthood was not with an oath. Verse 21, but this one, referring to Jesus, and on the, on the screen there, I put the word Jesus in, because this one is Jesus. Jesus was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn. 
That's Jehovah. That's the Father has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. What does that mean? Kind of working backwards, we've got to go back. It goes back to the psalm that we looked at last week, Psalm 110, where God made an oath that his Messiah would follow that order of Melchizedek. Let's think about the priesthood of Moses. The priests of Moses, they didn't have to take an oath. They were simply priests because they were born of the priestly tribe. They were priests because they were sons of Levi. It didn't make any difference what their character was like. It didn't make any difference how tall they were. It made no difference. They were born into the priesthood, and they had the benefits of it. On the other hand, Jesus became a priest because God said, you are going to be my bridge. You are a priest because of your character. Now, to illustrate that, I don't know how many of you are, are sports fans this morning, but I'm going to talk to you a little about the, about the Detroit Lions. Okay? When you get quiz, do you know who the Detroit, owner of the Detroit Lions is? I mean, it's a she. Her name is Sheila Ford Hemp. Can I tell you, she became the owner not by doing a thing. She didn't buy a thing. She was given the ownership by her mother, Martha Ford. And Martha Ford had ownership of the Detroit Lions because her husband was William Clay Ford. And after he died, it was given to his wife. Now, William Clay Ford purchased the Detroit Lions in 1961 for a measly $4.5 million. I say measly because Forbes magazine says the Detroit Lions today are worth $2.4 billion. Not a bad investment. They just need to play like they are worth $2.4 billion. But I'll let that go. Okay, so the Fords passed that, that on to their daughter. Why? I mean, is she a star football player? I mean, I don't, I don't know her at all. Maybe she knows a lot about football, but maybe she knows nothing about football. I mean, is she the owner of the Lions because she has astute business leadership? I don't know. I just know this. She became owner of the Lions because her last name was Ford. It became hers, an owner of an NFL team. You see, under the priesthood of the Levites, the Levites were priests because they were Levites. didn't matter how they lived. That was their heritage. That was their lineage. They were born into that tribe. It made them priests. But Jesus, what, what a contrast. You see, when he reached the age of maturity, he was baptized by John. And remember what happened? A dove came out of heaven. And what did the father say? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. No Levitical priest ever had the father come down and say to them, you are my priest. They were born into it. And my point is, you see how that is, makes Christ a superior priest. Second, let's go on to the second contrast. An old covenant versus a new covenant. It says this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The law was the old covenant. And though there was nothing wrong with the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant could not make anybody righteous. It could not make anybody forgiven. It simply told you this is the standard of righteousness. 
the priest came to minister that truth, to, to provide them that knowledge. The old covenant promised no righteousness. All you could do is come and worship, and you had to bring blood. You had to sacrifice animals. And all the priest did is represented you to God because the priests, they were sinners themselves. But under the new covenant, Jesus is the guarantor. The, he's, the, he's the promiser of a new agreement. And I like these words that somebody else wrote that talks about what a covenant is so that we understand. Says, a covenant is, in essence, an agreement between two people. It's an agreement that if one faithfully performs certain undertakings, the other will respond in a certain way. Under the old covenant, access to God was dependent upon a priest and upon man's obedience. Under the new covenant, access to God is based only on the welcoming love of God, the grace, the mercy of God. It says here, Jesus is the guarantor of the, the new covenant. Now, the word guarantor is a, is a Greek word. It's a financial term. It talks about giving someone financial security. The guarantor was one who would stand and make right the debt of someone else. He would be the one who, if he did not have enough finances to pay his bill, the guarantor would be the one who would fulfill that obligation. It was also used as, as a term for providing bail for someone who would be sure to come to trial. So this guarantor helped make financially inadequate people solvent, and they would provide the needed finances. Now again, no, notice, notice this, this contrast again. The old priest, under the law, could guarantee nothing. Christ guaranteed forgiveness. All they did was put blood on an altar for themselves. But when he stepped in, he gave blood, his own blood. And he says, I am standing as the one who will guarantee forgiveness of your sin. That's great news, right? But that's, that's the greatest news there is. There's one more contrast. All the other priests, they're temporary. Christ is permanent. Look at verse 23. It says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. I mean, there had to be a lot of priests because they would die. They kept dying off. They needed to be replaced. And they were only temporary. But Christ stood there as the permanent high priest forever and ever and ever. In verse 25, he wraps up that thought. He says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, literally to, to eternity, those who draw near through him. He's able to provide the, the, for the penalty that will last forever. And, and did you notice that phrase? For you that have been here for many weeks, notice how he says again, to draw near to God. That's, that's the idea. He, that's one of the, the, our author's favorite phrases. If you hope to draw near to God in your life, you have to go through Christ. And when you come through the person of Christ, you can put your name in there. And instead of it saying, in to the uttermost, those, you can put your name in there. You can put your first name. You can put your middle name. You can put your last name. And you can claim that as, as your promise. See, it's God who's provided the price so that you can know him. 
He makes intercession for you. And again, that's another fantastic thought. So why is Christ continuing today to sit in the heavens? What's, what's he doing up there? Why does he continue that exalted position? It says in verse 25, he does it so that he can make intercession for you and for me. Well, why? Because we're good at sinning, and we need it. I mean, we keep writing bad moral checks, and we need the guarantor to come and bail us out. We keep sinning, and we need that intercession because we continue for until the Lord takes us to be insufficient to living up to his standards, and we need some help. And Hebrew says, don't worry. Don't even worry about your sin today because there's a solution. He's with you. He's interceding for you. And to me, that, that's a mind-freeing thought. I mean, I need to make right by confessing my sins, but I know that the price has already been paid for them. Now look at, I'm going to put a verse up on the board here, that on the screen. It's from Hebrews chapter 9. And it says this. It says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. He's talking here about the temple or the tabernacle, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not its own. Now, since we're not Jewish, let me just take a minute to help us understand what that means. In the Old Testament, every year, once a year, the high priest stepped away from the people and he went into the most sacred place on this planet. We call it the Holy of Holies. And inside that room, there's a small chest, not, not a very big one, and it's called the Ark. And on each side of the Ark, there was an angel or cherub looking down in the center on the grail. Now, if I understand it right, if you can picture, it's kind of like the grill on your barbecue. Okay, it looks something like that because <laughs> that's, that's the way it was designed. And within that ark, there were some sacred objects that came from the time of Moses. And as the priest would come into this holy place, he would carry a saucer of blood, the blood of an innocent animal. And he would walk in, in holy reverence because he knew himself that he was also a, a sinner. And he would pour the blood of the animal out on the altar. And then he would back away. And God promised in his word that when he saw the blood poured out, he would forgive them. Now, God could have done whatever God wanted to do to arrange for that, but this was the method God chose. And the priest came not with his own blood because he was a sinner. He came with the blood of an innocent animal. He poured it out on the altar. And when God saw that, he proclaimed their forgiveness. But the priest had to come how often? Year after year after year, century after century after century. It lacked, lacked permanence. But when Christ came to the cross, he came with his own blood. And when his own blood was poured out, what did he say? It is finished. It's done. It's permanent. It's once for all. He says, I am representing you. I'm representing humanity. And the price has been paid in full. And he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might have what? The righteousness of God in him. 
So how can I now as a 21st century person know a timeless God? Through the blood of Christ. Through the once for all, complete, permanent, done, paid in full. That's how. I don't know how to make it any clearer than that. If I talk too much more on that, I'll, I'll make it more confusing. It's that simple. So back to, back to Hebrews 7.25. Again, he's consequently, he's able to save. Remember, God made an oath. He stamped his approval. Saved to save the uttermost. The idea there is we're never going to die. We're going to live eternally. Those who draw near to, to God through him, since he always lived to make intercession for them. So what needs to happen is we as sinners need to come to God through Jesus Christ, who's now sitting at the right hand of the Father. And when you come to him by faith, he can say to his Father, I know him. I know her. She's one of mine. He's one of mine. He represents us to the Father. I can't think of a whole lot more terrific thoughts than that. That's just about as good as it gets. And you know, there was never a chair for the priests in the tabernacle. You think you work on standing on your feet all day? They were standing on their feet all day, once a year. Then all of the daily sacrifice, all, all over time and time again. But Christ made one sacrifice, and it's done. And remember in John, the Baptist looked at him the first time he met him. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sin the world. That's the final sacrifice, God's lamb. And when he dies, the sin of the world has been paid for. Now, that's the priesthood contrasted, and we can look rather quickly at it's stated, the superiorities as they're stated. First, he's sinless. That's verse 26. He's superior because he is sinless. For indeed, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He threw in a bunch of words there. So let's, let's just say you decide, well, I'm not sure I want to believe in Jesus. I'm not sure that I want to come to faith in him. Then I'm going to ask you, who would you believe in? Who will you commit to? Because you need to find someone who is sinless and pure and innocent and separated from sinners. I mean, who's that? I mean, your doctor? Your godly mom or dad? Uh, your teacher? Your, your pastor? Some writer? We all flunk that. As good as those people might be, they're not sinless and innocent and perfect. You see, no one qualifies to be our Savior except Christ. Only he's sinless. In fact, in verse 27, it says, He has no need like those high priests. He has no need to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. And you see, you show me a human priest, and guess what? I'm going to show you a sinner. You show me a godly pastor, and I'm going to show you another sinner. You show me any human being besides Jesus Christ, and I'm going to show you a sinner who has a need. Someone who needs forgiveness because that person is in need. Now, I kind of smiled when I think of this because I want to just tell you a brief story about a, a fellow student of mine in, in school. 
went to Dallas Seminary, I went to Detroit Baptist Seminary. When I went to Detroit Baptist Seminary, it was the beginning. In the class I had this time, there were like two whole students. Okay, so it was me and somebody else. And I was in a, pre in a, a class, actually the class was on, on preaching. And Dr. Peterson was our teacher. He, he was a godly man. Uh, he was a good teacher, but he was a better prayer. I mean, his tu the tuition that I appreciated was more from his prayers. And I had a fellow student, his name was Jack, Jack Lewis. And he had, we were both younger. I was married, but I had no children at that time. He was married, he had five little children. He was working hard. He's trying to pay, pay his bills. And he got very behind. He was frustrated. Uh, he once told me sarcastically that he was trying to learn Hebrew and Greek. And he said, I didn't realize how confused I was until I recognized I was trying to translate Hebrew Bible and my Bible was upside down. And it took me three weeks to figure that out. I'm hoping he was sarcastic about that. But, uh, and so Dr. Peterson that day started his prayer and he said something like this. He said, Lord, there are some of my students here, and there are only two, there's some of my students here who are struggling. Jack goes, yes. And there's some people that are thinking about quitting, going a different way. Mm, yes, that's me. There's some people that are on the brink of despair. Jack goes, yeah, that's, that, that's me. My point is, even though these priests were dedicated to their work, they were weak, they were ignorant. They had to deal with their own sin. Contrast number two, his superiority number two, his sacrifice is once for all. The Hebrew writer uses a word I like to say here. The, the word he uses is the word hapax. It means, it's not a disease, by the way. It means once, once for all. It only happens once. For he did this hapax, once for all, when he offered himself. Isn't that great? I mean, you don't have to go to Mass doesn't help you. You don't have to keep reaching deeply and spending your money and hope, hopefully if you give enough to some good organization, you're going to buy freedom. You're going to buy eternity. You don't have to keep following someone around trying to do good works so that God sees what you're doing. Your price has been paid. Hapax. Done. Forgiven. That's grace. As the hymn writer said, he says, nearer, still nearer. Nearer I cannot be for in the person of his son I'm as near as he. So this morning I want to ask you, are you in Christ? And are you in Christ because of your faith in Christ? He paid the price for your sin. He took care of my sin and your sin. And he paid that payment in grace with his own blood. So take him off the cross. He's gone. He's out of the grave. He's seated in the heavenly places on our behalf. That's where he is. And we want to praise his name. Amen? Yeah, there is one other reason. He's the perfect son. The perfect son of God. Verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of oath, which comes later than law, appoints a son who has been made perfect. How long? Forever. Now, if we were not such a formal church, I'd suggest we start clapping. I mean, you clap for much less than that. Well, that, okay, that really wasn't my point, but, 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 but thanks for that. Uh, he's made perfect, absolutely perfect. Can I tell you, there's never going to be time he's a little less than perfect. His father is never going to come to him and say, you know, 
my pleasure in you is wearing a little bit thin today. He is already and always perfect. And there's never any time when he will be put on probation. There's never time that he needs to earn the love of his father. And so he was made a son, perfect forever, and in the perfection of his character. So can I encourage you this morning, get on the bridge. You've never come to Christ. He is the way to know God. He is the bridge between us and our sinfulness and God and his holiness. And he has been raised, and he's been ascended, and he's seated at the right hand of God. And those are the great doctrines we hold very firmly at our church. He represents you and me to his father. About one more minute here. And at times, when Ann and I are camping, you walk out in the middle of the night, especially up north, and you look from the trees, and what, what splendor and the bright stars in the sky. And immediately, when you do that, you've done that, you're kind of overwhelmed with the power and the might of God. But then I find myself thinking, you know, he loves me more than those stars. As great as that is, he's more concerned about me than those stars and of those beautiful lakes. He's interceding for me, even right now, as I walk out outside. He's more concerned about us. So I want to tell you, if you're not in a relationship with Christ, this is your chance. This is your opportunity to come to know who the one is who built the bridge. And I invite you, get on that bridge. It doesn't get any better than knowing who Christ is. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful. I don't know the, the story of those who are here this morning. Maybe there's some people here who can identify with Jack in my classroom who are struggling and feeling inadequate and misguided and confused. Maybe they need to understand who Jesus is. If there's, Father, there's somebody here this morning that's never come to know Christ, but Father, this is, this is a perfect opportunity. I've done as well as I could do through the power of your Spirit to explain the, the truth of the gospel message that Jesus died and he rose again and he lives forever with you. And by simply coming to a place of faith and trust in Christ, we can have eternal life. So, Father, I pray for those who are here this morning. I pray, Lord, that they would, if there's someone without Christ, they would come to know you. You are the only, you have provided for us the only Savior, the only way. And the good news, Father, is that you, you don't care what anybody has done. It doesn't matter how filthy our lives have been, how guilty we are, how wrong we've been. Father, it doesn't make any difference because your blood cleanses away all sin. So, Father, we come with, with praise and adoration. Thank you for caring for us before we were even born. Thank you for flooding the earth with the presence of, of Christ, for not letting us forgive him as you've recorded these truths in this eternal, timeless scripture. We thank you that you are, you have provided the bridge. And we pray, Lord, pray finally that there's someone who doesn't know Christ and ask that they would ask to come to you in faith believing that you have done the work needed to provide for them the forgiveness of sin and eternal life. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.